I'm Sarah Heiner, President of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled today to be talking to Paula Spencer-Scott, author of Surviving Alzheimer's, Practical Tips and Soul-Saving Wisdom for Caregivers, and she's a top expert in dementia and family care. Paula has written a dozen books on health and family, including some co-authored with physicians at Harvard, UCLA, and Duke. She runs the website survivingalz.com and has five close family members who have had or have have or have had dementia. You can learn more about Paula and her work at paulaspencerscott.com. So Paula, five family members. That that makes you the ultra expert on caregiving. Yes, it's a lot of people close up and it's never very pretty. Well, the interesting thing, and the first thing I wanna to talk to you about today is what you refer to as the seven deadly emotions of caregiving. And the thing that struck me as I was thinking about this conversation is caregivers are never prepared for what they're going to experience in caregiving. It's kind of like new parents. You think you know, but you don't. Caregiving, you're not even right. expecting it. Suddenly you're thrown into a situation and bam, you're in it. Yeah, I, and a smiley face would, would never be the emoji that anyone would pick to represent um, what, what we're going through. It's really, uh, as you say, like raising a, a child suddenly having a baby. It's, it's a whole new experience that you've maybe heard about or read about in the news, but once you're really in it and faced with it, it's a, it's a very different reality. Well, and also it's multi-tiered because not only suddenly do you have to support them you have to rearrange your schedule you depending on what the situation is you may have to take on finances and medication and become an expert and a time manager and all these complicated things and depending on your your own family support it's all on you i mean it's it's dangerous to the caregiver which is really part of what we want to talk about yeah and it's seldom the only thing that's going on in your life you um we often have work or children or just outside interests in our life that are all also going on at the same time. Yeah. So let's talk about, again, the human aspect from the caregiver's point of view, these seven deadly emotions of caregiving. Um, because the caregivers, as we know, and it's been reported, caregivers are at their own dangers of health and they're dealing with their own complicated aspects and they're human. As you said, it gets added into your life. So you were going along having a good life and bam, now you're a caregiver. So you get angry, you get resentful, you get your own feelings of guilt or worry. So let's walk through what those are. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, emphasis on, on physical health, but a lot less is said about the psychological health. And I think just naming them is really the first step to reducing a lot of the added stress that they can create. All right, so let's start out. So number one is resentment. And again, having just gone into this, I've actually been through caregiving a couple times. There are these moments where you really do get resentful. You have your own life, and but you don't want to have to deal with the, the the problem that you're dealing with. Yeah, I call it the the dirty little secret uh, emotion of caregiving because it's really a taboo one to admit. You can feel resentment of uh, other people; they're having their happy Facebook lives, and you're not. You're resentful of fate. You know this isn't what you expected or planned. And then you can even feel resentful uh, for the person that you're helping. It's sort of this, you know, love you, hate you, or hate this moment. Um, relentlessness of it, the thanklessness of it. So w why shouldn't we feel resentment? Um, it's a really um, a, a powerful 
bunch of things going on and yet you're not supposed to really express that feeling. And I think that's an important aspect for caregivers to understand that it's okay to have these negative feelings. Like on the one hand, you want to be all about love and supporting the people that you love the most, especially if you're dealing with end of life issues. But it's okay to also be mad. That's all part of the complicated situation you're in. You need to have a place for yourself for that. Yeah, there's a vision of selflessness and sort of selfless joy about our image of helpers in the world. And it's not always helpful to us. It's it's okay not to be 100% selfless and self-sacrificing and chipper 100% of the time. In fact, it's normal. And being resentful doesn't make you a bad person. It really makes you kind of an honest person. Is there anything beyond simply identifying and allowing yourself to be resentful that someone should do about these emotions? Sure. Um, and especially for one like this is, is having outlets, outlets for venting, whatever works for you. It might be, you know, friends that you can call at the drop of the hat or, or journaling. I know caregivers who would do, you know, the silent scream in, in their car, in the garage and get it out of their system. Um, being part of a, a support group, if you're in some kind of long-term chronic situation, um, anything that's kind of a healthy outlet for offloading some of this added stress. Uh, with resentment, a, a one that also is really helpful is avoiding comparisons with other people and other lives. You almost, I would just tell myself, you know, that's I'm just not going to go there right now. This is, this is what it is um, for the time being and get it out of your system, vent, and it really makes it easier to keep going forward. Well, it's really funny. Whenever I get on my little soapbox of woe is me, I'm always very quick to go because it's easy to resent or it's easy to feel like, well, but, you know, other people don't suffer this. But I actually go the other way and think, you know what, it could be so much worse. And everybody has their own version of what they're dealing with. Yes. So I try, yes. <laughs> try to give myself a little bit of space on that one. That's um, really useful. So what's it, So let's talk about the next one you've got is anger. So where does resentment end and anger come in? Anger affects some people more than others. Some of us uh, have more shorter fused personalities, so anything can set us off. Um, but also some of us have shorter fused situations, um, but we all lose it sometimes. And snapping at the person you're helping or at the poor, you know, checkout girl at the store who doesn't have anything to do with your caregiving situation. However we snap, it's a way of releasing stress. Um, the problem is it can't be our default mode all the time because it's not really a very healthy or happy way to live. So I like to think of it as the, the silver lining to kind of losing your cool, which is that it's like your personal warning system that something needs to change, that you, you need more of something. Is there, what, what would you need more of? I mean, in terms of well, more you might, space for yourself? Yeah, you might need more sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that. Yeah, you know, you might need more hands-on help so that you can you can get that sleep. And and maybe that's just offloading your most stressful task. Maybe, um, you know, bathing, helping somebody bathe is really the thing that you just it sets you over the edge, and that's the one thing you get help with. You know, maybe it's more of that um, emotional, practical support of more outlets. Maybe it's just more time for yourself. I mean, even like 15 minutes a day or more self-kindness so that I, I know caregivers who it's all about, you know, what the person wants to eat and what they want to listen to and what they want to do. But it's okay sometimes to serve the food that you want to eat or, or uh, listen to the music that you want to listen to. Um, just 
any little small thing that helps offload some of that stress, step out of it. It's okay. Let it go. So you raise a really interesting point that I've I've noticed in in my world, where you said you know it's okay to have do what you want to do or have eat what you want to eat versus what the other person wants to eat. I think and later next your next um, area is actually guilt. Um, so is it okay for the caregiver to get a vote in the process? Is it okay to say no to the person that you're taking care of, where you want to you know be there for them and you want them to be happy and you want to you know they're in this sad space so you want to be able to help them as much as you can. You want to say yes, yes, yes. Is it okay to let yourself get a vote as well? Yeah, I think it's not only okay, but it's it's healthy and smart and it's how we are when the person is, is healthy, everything's a, a give and take. And obviously when, you know, they're not healthy, they need help. You want to have a, a, give them a little more leeway, but it just can't always be one-sided or else, you know, it's like the seesaw. You're just stuck on the ground and you're not getting anywhere. And that makes you less helpful to the person <laughs> who's dangling up in the air on the other end of the seesaw. Well, and again, angry and resentful. The thing I've also noticed about anger, it's not like in my experience, I get angry at the patient, well, I end up getting angry at all the other people around me. You hold it in when you're with the patient and then suddenly, you know, some poor child asks you an innocent question like, can I go to the movies with somebody tonight? And all right. of a sudden it's bam, right in their face. Stress rolls downhill. It's whoever's the <laughs> easiest target who's right there. Right. Or, right, exactly. Often my kids. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you deal with that? Do you, do you, I mean, it's controlling yourself, but you also need to have a conversation with the people in your life to say, please understand and, you know, let's have a signal where if, if I suddenly snap at you, you know, tweak your nose or understand or give me a kiss or it's really my saying I need a hug? That's a really great idea. That's anything to help everybody realize the situation that we're in and talking about it and acknowledging it is a goes a long way. Hmm. Okay. So I touched on guilt. So where else do people feel guilty? Is it like, what's what do people need to process in the the guilt aspect of a care of caregiving right well we feel guilty for things that we've done um or things that we haven't done so we we haven't cooked their their favorite meal or we um didn't uh, you know arrange the pillows the right way or things we said or didn't say oh we snapped at them and then i feel guilty about that feel guilty for not being there enough but you know you visit mom every day but you're you're not visiting her um for three hours every day, or um, you, some people feel guilty because they're healthy and the person that they love is not healthy. And so they, they feel guilty about that. There's all these kinds of things that churn through our heads, I mean, all day long, and, and parents are really familiar with this concept. But it, it stems in, in caregiving, I think, from, uh, well, and in parenting, from having really high, often almost idealized standards of wanting to do the best by that person. And you want it. You want to do your best. It's all born out of good intentions, but it's just impossible to keep it up 100% of the time. And you have to. It's a matter of giving yourself some slack. Yeah, I heard something actually that you should aim as a caregiver. You should aim for I'll call it scoring a B, like stop yes. aiming for the A plus because you'll yes. never be able to get it. Yes, because if you aim for the B plus, then you'll often exceed it and you'll hit that A and it'll feel great and everyone will be happy. But you know what? B plus is B is just great. The person will thrive. They'll be taken care of and everybody's just much happier. The other big thing is avoiding uh, what I call red flag words. You know, I ought to, I should have, 
you know, always, I'll never. They're, they're just those those kind of almost poisonous words because they embody those high standards that we're, we're trying to have. And I used to just like flick my wrist when I would hear myself saying, well, I ought to do this. Well, I should have done it that way. Oh, yeah. Forget it. Oh, that, that, that's, that's an implied guilt. You're already guilty. You've already lost the minute those words come out of your mouth. Yes. Um, I was going to ask you something else about guilt. Oh, I know. Because um, you mentioned something about whether or not the patient, like you feel guilty that you're not spending more time with the patients. So here's a weird, weird question. Do the patients really watch you there that much? <laughs> Actually, uh, if you ask a lot of them, the answer would be no. I mean, it, I think it's, that's so important for people to understand. Yeah, people don't always want to be hovered over twenty four seven, and uh, everybody needs their space. And and the thing is, when you can go away and separate, then you come back, and it's a much more positive time. It's much easier than when you're just all closed in together all the time. Right. So is it, I mean, is 10 minutes enough? Again, depending, and there's a grand variation. So you're, you've done a lot of work on Alzheimer's, but caregivers span, span the globe of all sorts of different times of sure. types of ailments, obviously. So like, I know that it's a lot of work for them. If they don't feel well, for them to feel like they have to entertain or to make conversation on the one hand, they want to be visited. On the other hand, it's work for them. They're exhausted afterward. That's exactly right. And it, and it's it's very situation dependent, but I think that number, 100%, is, is impossible in any circumstance because it's impossible to do it at any high level so that if you're um, there 100% of the time, you know, neither of you is having a good time 100% of the time. It's just not possible. So... And- and even, even if it's not 100, even if it's, you know, you go to work, you run home, you take care of your own family, and then you run over and take care of the person that you're caregiving for, if it's 100% of that remaining piece, that still may be more than, than the patient needs and more than you can give without making yourself sick. That's exactly right. All right. With that, let's take a little break, and then we're going to come back and talk about the other four deadly emotions of caregiving. I'm here with Paula Spencer-Scott. I'm talking to Paula Spencer Scott, one of the foremost experts on education and support for caregivers, those loving family members who share in the care and oversight of our aging population, including the growing number of people with Alzheimer's. Caregiving is intensely complicated from both a human and a financial perspective. At Bottom Line, we're your team of top experts in all aspects of your life, including caregiving, general health care, finances, estate planning, and more. We pride ourselves on providing guidance and support to individuals and families by helping them lead more informed and vibrant lives through our actionable, double fact-checked advice. Subscribe to Bottom Line Personal today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. We're back with Paula Spencer-Scott, the author of Surviving Alzheimer's, Practical Tips and Soul-Saving Wisdom for Caregivers. And we're talking about the seven deadly emotions of caregiving because caregivers' attention, you need to take care of yourself. And Paula talks about this this array of emotions that caregivers go through. A lot of them are negative. We've talked about resentment, anger, guilt. These are negative things, but they're real and they're part of the process. And you need to, to accept it and learn how to manage it. All right, Paula, let's talk about worry, because there's a lot that, that caregivers can worry about. 
Right. And worry affects some personality types more than others. It's uh, some people are, are have a, that low grade anxiety all the time. And then it amps up when you're in this kind of a, a situation, a crisis. Um, but the problem is whether it attacks you suddenly or whether it's something you always deal with and gets worse now, it just eats away at your own well-being. I mean, a little worry is kind of a natural, useful thing. It helps you turn over all the right stones, make sure you're getting the right kind of care. But when you can't turn it off and it becomes your default mode, um, it's not so great for you. So I think people feel like, well, if I'm worrying, then I'm engaged with the, the issue, right? I'm on, I'm on top of it if I'm thinking about it and obsessing it. But it, it can quickly go south in terms of just becoming more worry there it becomes these triggers more obsessing more dread you're kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop but you're not accomplishing anything right of course worry is merely wasted energy because you can't you know the classic worrying about a plane crash worrying about a car crash you can't control it there's nothing you right. can do and even worrying about whether or not a patient will fall out of bed or there's nothing no no control that you can have how right. about worrying about again the the other half of your life again, which is negative, but again, wanting to understand the spectrum of the caregiver's feelings. So worrying about not just the patient, but also what they're not dealing with in the rest of their life, worry that they're not getting their work done, worrying about their kids, etc. Exactly. And worrying about your own work and your own kids. And there's just so many facets of it that you can turn over and spend a lot of time with. Um, so better to create, I'll call it action plans. I mean, I always yes. do. If I worry, I write stuff down so that I don't have to remember it anymore. Yes, that is exactly the way to approach it. If you can turn a worry into something specific, you know, um, so instead of a, a vague, you know, oh, it'll get worse or you will be broke, um, the first step is to turn it into something specific. You know, what is going to be the outcome of this test that I'm worried about? And then what will happen? So then you attach it to an action. And what can I do about it? What are the concrete steps I could take to deal with this thing I'm worrying about. Is there a person I can call? Can I make a list of questions for the doctor? Have I followed some fall prevention checklist and I know that I've got that covered and I've done that? I mean, any kind of steps you can take that translate worry into peace of mind by taking action. And if there's no action that can be taken, should you figure out a way to just let go? Yes. Yes, and, and ruminating is really one of the, the super useful things caregivers tell me time and again. I'm not really a person for therapy. I don't really like talking to someone. But if you're just really like you can't get out of the, the hamster on the wheel thinking, um, that talking to a trained counselor, you can learn some, some tools to kind of help you turn that off if you cannot just set it aside. Yeah, and it's really important because, again, that worry, it's merely destructive and self-destructive. All right, let's go to loneliness. Loneliness is particularly a problem for people in really long-term care situations. Um, spousal caregivers are particularly vulnerable. Um, the dementia situations are uh, extremely common because you've, you've got the loss of companionship of the person as well as the caregiving itself 24-7 can be a really isolating experience. The world shrinks almost without you realizing it. You, know, you let go of things you're doing, your, your friends fall away, you're just kind of laser focused on this issue, this thing. 
Um, and before you know it, it, you're you're suffering from the experience of loneliness in a way you might not have never characterized yourself that way, but your world has just shrunk so much. And is it two sides of it? On the one hand, that you don't know how to ask for or accept help. So some of those friends and family members who were trying to help you early on and you didn't accept the help, so they fell, they fell away? Absolutely. And you need to learn to ask for and accept, possibly two different things, possibly part of the same ex- experience. Um, because again, you can't do it yourself. Yes, that is absolutely right. Sometimes friends fall away because they, people don't know what to say or what to do. Um, or family members as well. But what's really true, I hear time and time again, is that people want to help. They want to be around. They just don't know how to do it. So they make a tentative offer, and you kind of bat them away because, you know, I got this, or it's embarrassing, or I, you don't think you really need that help. And, and they don't keep asking. People don't keep coming back again and again. So you've kind of got yourself in this this pickle. And it's it's hard, but if you just, you know, reach out and you ask somebody for something really specific. I need help with like X thing at X time. It makes it much more easier for people to say, yes, I can do that and, and to help you. Well, and even to maybe make a list beforehand because on the spot, you don't really think about yes. what you need, but have that list of stuff. So I had my father-in-law passed away last year and his wife thought she could handle it, thought she could handle it. And I said, this is while he was sick, he'd had a stroke. And I came out, I said, I'm coming, I'm flying out there to be with you. And she said, no, 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 I'm fine. Well, she was so grateful. She didn't realize even the state that she was in. Sometimes you're so caught up within it, you don't realize how bad you are until someone right. you know, really forces themselves in. Right. And you can reach out for help in both real and virtual ways. So there's all the practical help and, and, and companionship and support that, that you need and can get from um, friends and relatives in real life. And then also, there's all kinds of virtual ways that people can connect with others that also helps um, reduce some of that isolation and loneliness, whether it's, you know, a, a chat group or a support group right. online or just picking up a friend and, and talking on the phone. Yes. Well, and even, again, back to being, allowing the caregivers to give themselves that hour or half hour, whatever the time is. I remember my mother didn't want to leave my father because he would be upset if she left. And I said, well, he's going to be upset either way, so go. Go take your time. Right. You know, you might and, she, as- and she was really in a better, you know, she was probably a little bit happier, a little more energized when she came back to him. And, and yes. no doubt he could sense that. And they had a better quality interaction after she had that, that break that neither of them wanted to take. Right. Well, and then back to anger, right? Back to resentment. Because mm-hmm. when she had her space, now she came back, she didn't snap as much. She wasn't as short-tempered about things. Right. So now speaking of this defensiveness and anger and resentment, so let's talk about that number six, defensiveness, where I, if, I'm, if I'm tense, if I'm angry, and now you criticize, I've been cooking for you, I made your favorite food, and you want to say, it's overcooked. And now, shazam, I'm angry, right? <laughs> so you get very sensitive, defensiveness. Yes, that, that defensiveness is something that we often don't self-recognize. But there we are uh, being sensitive to, to criticism. We get you know, irritated. Somebody makes a suggestion and we, we get irritated by it. We have arguments over uh, someone, to, you know, how we should proceed with a family member. It just manifests in a lot of different ways. And again, it stems ironically from, you know, you're trying to do so much, you're trying to do it well, but we tend to then cut ourselves off from that well-intentioned input. 
just like you, you were talking about it makes you lonely, the same kind of thing makes you feel persecuted and makes you feel unappreciated and all these other negative emotions that, that go with it. And you cut yourself off from what could be constructive input or help. Now, how much of the defensiveness occurs with, I'll call it, not with the patient, but with, I'll call it peer family members? Right, so you got a whole bunch of siblings and there's always a couple of them that do more work and one or two that do less work. And it's always the ones yeah. that do less work that want to chime in from the stands and say, hey, I wouldn't be doing that way. Yeah, I would say most of it. <laughs> <laughs> most of it. And, um, and, and we, go ahead. Well, it's just, it's really hard. These, these, fine, these family dynamics that, that step in and you kind of fall into your old roles. Um, and the ways to, to kind of, when you feel that, that, that defensiveness kind of taking place, it's really hard, but it can be helpful if you try to be objective. So like step back and you just have to ask yourself, okay, is there possibly any merit to their suggestion? Um, and make it about the person that you all are caring for and how would this help them rather than about you? It's, it's hard to take the person out because you feel so attacked. But if you can do those two things, then that kind of helps neutralize that emotion. Well, it's so funny. You kind of revert to your childhood roles, right? Suddenly, yes. that's the one, you know, he always picked on me when I was young. Yes. Um, one thing that I've, I've found helpful in coordinating the sibling groups with the caregiving I've done is to have regular sibling meetings and updates so that everybody's on the same page. So that the people that are more involved, it doesn't help that some are more involved and less involved but at least we're communicating so that nobody suddenly comes in out of the blue to question what's happening. And they have right. the opportunity to speak up now or I'll call it forever hold their peace. Yeah, transparency and communication really go a long way in, in family situations because there is always somebody who's doing more than somebody else. And somebody is on the ground or and is closer. But if everybody not only knows what's going on, but feels heard. So like four really important words are, what do you think? Even if you don't really care what they think, it's important to ask and important to let them weigh in. Yeah, that's a great phrase. All right, last, last deadly emotion, grief. And this is, this is the really, the one that's generally associated with caregiving. Right, it, you're, you may be grieving uh, for someone who's still alive, but they're just so altered. And you're grieving for really a lost way of life. And th this is whether the person is living with dementia or they've had a stroke or whatever the, the situation, but things have changed. Um, with often dementia, but other things as well, you're grieving for that future that you won't have, that you imagined. Um, there's really sort of two kinds of, of conditions going on at, at the same time. One is called anticipatory grief. You're, you're imagining like what, what's gonna be happening later. And um, it's actually been shown to be as real in, and as equivalent in its intensity and how it makes us feel to post-mortem grief. So you, yeah. those feelings of grieving that you're feeling while the person is still alive are, are, are true and real. And the other thing that's going on is a condition with dementia that, that's called ambiguous loss which is, um, the, the, you know, the, it's this there but not there, right? They maybe even seem perfectly healthy, but they're just not there. And surveys have shown that this is really 
caregivers say this is the toughest aspect of dementia caregiving for them is living with that there but not there kind of feeling. Yeah, because they're gone, but you have to be there. And we're going to talk later on about some of the you know, challenges of end of life and, and you know, the extreme cases of dementia. Um, so how, how best for people to deal with those grief or, you know, grief counseling, support groups, because again, with the different, each different stage is different. Right. And, and it depends on how, um, how debilitating that, that it, that it is for you. But like all these other emotions, being real about what you're feeling is, is really important that it's normal and reasonable to be feeling grief and it's not going to jinx anything. To, to talk about it. You don't need to, to paste a happy face on all the time. Um, the, the, the person who's ill or dying is sad too. Um, and it's kind of the, um, the elephant in the room if nobody's ever really acknowledging the, the poignancy of this situation. Um, a lot of people turn it into something constructive by, um, and, and this is more true for somebody um, with some illnesses like dementia than, than others who are really sick at the end of life, but having some kind of like a legacy project, right? They're taking an oral history or a life history or working on a scrapbook together or um, walking in an Alzheimer's walk, um, deciding what special possessions are going to be donated to charity, whatever kind of puts a, a more um, uh, kind of forward um, positive spin on it um, can be helpful for the, everyone in the situation as a whole. Um, but in, in terms of just someone who's individually dealing with it, it's just having, you know, more kindness to yourself, you know, laying the groundwork of your, your life beyond this caregiving situation, kind of trying to be present for the person you're helping and also keep, you know, keep one hand in the life that you're going to continue to be living. All right. Great advice. Thank you, Paula Spencer Scott. So caregivers care for yourselves. You know, the, the old, put your oxygen mask on yourself first. Care for yourselves before you're caring for those loved ones who are ill and troubled. Because if you're not healthy, then they're not going to be healthy. Thank you so much.